Today we are continuing in 1 Peter. Last week we started uh, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. This is going to be our main sermon series for the next couple months. Uh, last week we looked at how the people of God, especially in 1 Peter, but how there's also this thread that runs through our lives too, are both elect and exiled. Meaning that we're uh, this treasured people that um, God has chosen. Uh, God loves the whole world. Uh, he has shown his love towards the whole world, and, and uh, there are those that have responded to that by being believers in Christ. But oftentimes, this treasuredness can feel disconnected. It can feel scattered. Thank you. Um, and it can feel like, are we really, tre- are we really in God's will? Is, are the things that we're uh, experiencing and suffering, is that really, maybe we're not on um, in the grace of God, and maybe we're just kind of out here on our own. The, the audience in First Peter was scattered all throughout modern-day Turkey, and they were experiencing a very um, distinct persecution, not necessarily violently, uh, meaning physically, but more so in a social aspect. These were Gentiles. They were, these were not the Jewish nation. These were Gentiles that would have converted from a pagan religion, uh, idol worship, to that of seeking the one true God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And so their whole worlds were being turned upside down uh, because the society that they knew, the way that they interacted with society and with neighbors and with friends completely changed almost overnight. And they're new believers. They're trying to figure out, you know, how do I walk out this Christian life? And am I crazy? Because these people are really hating on me because I'm not following the family gods anymore. And so uh, a whole bunch of uh, believers in the Turkey area is who Peter is writing to. Last uh, week, we talked mainly about how even though our lives can be scattered, uh, that we are treasured, and also in the aspect that our faith is actually for obedience to Jesus Christ. So it's not just that we, uh, we get saved or we come to know God and then we do whatever we want. There's actually this uh, relational dynamic of hearing from God, listening to him, and responding to him. And there's all of these patterns and rhythms in our lives that we've learned as we've grown up, even if you grew up within the church, that as we come into a deeper relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father, um, there's often this change and this transformation in both of our heart and our mind and in our actions that is taking place. But we can feel disjointed because uh, a lot of the places that we interact with don't necessarily understand this. So maybe we're off our rocker. Maybe these believers are off their rocker. Peter is writing to them to encourage them to say, even though you're suffering, you're suffering and the end goal of your suffering and your faith is worth it. To stay in the faith, to not go back to the, the ways of your former ignorance, but to stay in the, in the faith of uh, who Jesus is, of his death and his resurrection, and not to give up on that. And then he's going to go ahead and tell the people, well, as a Christian, even though you're being persecuted societally, Uh, This is how you need to respond. This is how you need to think about living the gospel out in your life. So that's the first uh, that was last week. This week we're going to be in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, if you want to turn in your Bibles to there. Um, A big idea for today is the idea of inheritance. The idea of inheritance is going to be our main focus for the text today. Uh, We're going to get to the text in a second. Uh, First, I wanted to tell... Uh, an Old Testament story that I kind of linked up this week that was that was really cool that has to do with inheritance. That has to do with inheritance isn't necessarily um, in and of itself good or bad, right? Like you can inherit something. You could inherit debt, right? An inheritance doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh, wow, 
my loving father and mother left me this whole awesome estate that I get to take care of for the rest of my life. Could be that you also inherited a gajillion dollars of debt. And then you put the emotional and spiritual stuff in there. We all inherit things from our uh, family lineage. And we also all pass things on, both good and bad, to um, the people that are around us, to our family, to our friends, to those people that we're in community with the most. We're not disconnected and isolated like a lot of times we want to think that we are. But our families and our close relationships and community are effective and uh, we're kind of always in this interaction. And so we're inheriting things, but we're also passing on an inheritance in our community and uh, to those in the future as well. So I want to tell a story about inheritance in the Old Testament. Again, Peter is writing to Gentiles, but he's using Old Testament language all over the place. And so the Gentiles are kind of learning their story or the story of their forefathers that they didn't know before. And so I wanted to kind of enter us into that and see a really long, you know, over hundreds of years kind of uh, inheritance story that is really complicated. It's messy. Everything I say that the Bible says, it's not that the Bible is saying that's okay. That's just what the story is. So keep, keep that in the back of your mind. So this story is going to be about two people. First of all, does anybody know who this is? That's Lebanon Levi. Good job. Does anybody know who the guy on the top is? Good job. Who said that? Good jo- Wait, you knew that, didn't you? We said that during worst. Did anybody else know that was Simeon Jackson or who Simeon Jackson is? No. I was trying to find a famous Simeon, so we had some kind of visual representation. That's what came up in my Google search. He's a, he's a soccer player for Grim- Grimsby. Is my saying that right, Ben? Gr- <laughs> Grimsby in, in, uh, in uh, England. He's a famous, I guess not that famous, soccer player up there. So just as a visual reference, this isn't the historical, if anybody was asking, the historical Simeon and Levi. However, these two are brothers, okay, in the story. Simeon and Levi are brothers in the story. And this story is mostly about Levi, but it's also about Simeon, but we're not going to really talk about Simeon. So the story goes is that there's these two brothers that are the sons of Jacob, who are Simeon and Levi. They're part of a bigger uh, family dynamic of 12, 13, 14 boys, plus a whole bunch of uh, girls and daughters that are in there. Um, Jacob, if you remember, is one of the forefathers of the Jewish faith, uh, one of the three patriarchs uh, that God spoke to and guided um, way, 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 way back that eventually bloomed into the Jewish uh, nation, which is where the Messiah would come out of. Jesus was the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the Messianic prophecies, not only for the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. So these are sons of Jacob. And um, what happened is that in this story is that their sister got dishonored and raped by a neighboring uh, nation because there was a leader in that neighboring nation that really wanted to be with their sister. And so he took inappropriate actions to be with her and to get her to somehow want to marry him, which is, again, not what you do. Um, And so this happened, and Simeon and Levi are upset, obviously. They're like, how can this nation, how can this uh, person make a prostitute out of our sister? So what they did is they uh, made up this plan. And the plan goes like this. They said to the leader, you know what? You can marry our sister, but first you have to be circumcised. And circumcision was a mark of uh, cultural identity in certain places in the ancient Near Eastern culture. So they were saying, all the men, you and all of your men, need to be circumcised to kind of um, 
be part of our family. And so they're like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So they go and do uh, circumcision with uh, uh, rocks that are sharp, which again does not seem, you know, enjoyable at all. On the third day, they're still healing all the men in this little nation. And what happens is that Simeon and Levi make this plan and they bring an army into there while the people are recovering from their circumcision and they go and they kill all the men. Not only do they kill all the men, they also go and plunder and take from um, all the houses. They take the women and the children, make them their own and all of that. Not necessarily the best reaction. So what ends up happening is that uh, Jacob, the father, hears about this And there's this insinuation like, of course, what happened to your sister is by no means just and good. But what you did in your act of vengeance and revengeance is also not just and good. And we can hear the words of 1 Peter that we'll come to later, where 1 Peter tells the people, do not repay evil for evil. That the way of being gospel people is not repaying evil for evil. There was this evil act that needs justice but that we're not going to repay that in some kind of vengeance and some kind of revenge, repaying evil for evil. So Jacob is upset with this. Their father is upset with this. He's upset with the situation with uh, his daughter. He's upset that his uh, Simeon and Levi acted this way. So fast forward a couple of years. Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's speaking words over his son, almost this verbal inheritance these blessings or sometimes curse where what he's doing, he's taking stock of what he's seen in his son's lives over the years. And he's speaking these words and he doesn't pull any punches. And some of these words are words of blessing. Other words are like, you're kind of cursing yourself in the midst of who you're becoming. So you need to wake up and realize that these things that you've done in the past and the way that your heart has been formed and the actions that you're walking in are not good. And so the inheritance blessing, the uh, verbal inheritance that Jacob gives to Simeon and Levi is this, and this is from Genesis. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be part of their plans. For in their anger, they murdered men and they crippled oxen just as they pleased. A curse on their anger for it is fierce, a curse on their wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them, remember that word, I will scatter them among the descendants of Jacob. I will disperse them throughout Israel. So their inheritance, the thing that they were, that was spoken over them is what? That they're going to be scattered. And this curse uh, of their anger is going to kind of follow them unless they do something about it. So fast forward many, 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 many years. Uh, The nation of Israel eventually goes into Egypt. They're not really uh, the nation yet. They're just a people group, the Hebrews. Uh, They're under the slavery of uh, Egypt. God rescues them out of slavery um, into uh, the wilderness to then go into the promised land. As they are there in their freedom, what they start to do is they start to go a little bit crazy. Moses, the leader of the Israelites at that time, goes up to the mountain, starts talking to God, And God is telling him about these covenant commands. He's giving them the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all these other things that I drew you out of this place, out of this slavery because of my love for you and I am going to form you into a people. Here are the commands that I give you this day. Well, as Moses is up on top of the mountain uh, getting uh, words from God, getting commands from God to bring down to the people, as the story goes, what happens? 
At the bottom of the mountain, there's a sex fest that is going on with uh, golden calves, uh, worship of the pagan gods that were out of Egypt and also out of the land that they came into. And in a matter of maybe weeks, maybe even less than that, the rescue that they experienced um, kind of, they forgot about it or they forgot who actually rescued them. And now they have this freedom. What are we going to do with all this freedom? Well, they kind of chose wrongly what to do with their freedom. And again, we can hear echoes of First Peter where First Peter tells the, the Christians, you are free, Christians, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So we can come into the Christian faith in this newfound freedom and be like, I'm free from this shame and, and this blame and this fear and everything else. I can do whatever I want. And yet that's not exactly how the Christian life works because it's those very things can then put us back into the place where we're actually worshiping and giving our allegiance to other gods. Those other gods tend to be ourselves, where we just do what we want, where we make ourselves to be the own, our own God. So back to Israel. All of this stuff is happening. Moses comes down. The Lord's anger, Moses' anger is burning against them. Moses gives the people a chance to repent. He says, Israel, whoever is on the Lord's side, separate yourself from the people. So he says this to all of them. People separate themselves from the other people. But there is a significant um, group of people called the Levites that are from, not Lebanon Levites, but, but Levi's bloodline that separate themselves from the people. Like a huge portion of them actually separate from there. And so there's this chance for repentance. Who wants to follow the Lord? Uh, people uh, return, to, some people return to the Lord. And then Moses gives the command uh, to the Levites. And he says, you need to slaughter the people that did not happen, that did not return to the Lord. Because otherwise they're going to taint and defile all the other people that um, are here today. And the Levites respond in faith and they go ahead and they stand against their family. They stand against their brothers and their sisters and their neighbor and they do what the Lord through Moses commanded them to do. Now that's rough, right? I think there was 3,000 people um, according to the biblical text that that died that day uh, because of the rebellion and because of the cleansing. Now, again, I'm not saying that if... uh, there's some kind of discrepancy about what's going on that you should kill your neighbor. Different culture, everything else. But realize the fact that this time the Levites responded in faith. The Levites responded in faith to what God had commanded. Previously, Levi took things into his own hands in an act of vengeance in order to get his way, in order to do what he saw as right. So there's the shift here between the father of the Levites kind of doing whatever he wants to do and enacting vengeance as compared to listening and following the commands of God, not on your own accord, but out of what he is saying. So we're, we're here. And what happens is that Moses actually blesses the Levites. Jacob previously cursed Levi and Simeon about how their faith, or sorry, how their anger was fierce. And there was a curse upon that anger. But now Moses, kind of another father figure, blesses the Levites and says, you have been set apart to the Lord today. This is right after they respond to God's call. For you stood against your own sons and your brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Again, that might seem like a weird blessing. Oh, you just went and slaughtered all of your brothers, not all, 
brothers and sisters. But again, get what the underlying um, thing that can transcend culture is, is that the Levites responded in faith to what God said. So now fast forward again 40 years. Uh, People are about to enter into the promised land. They're all over the place. Um, They're over... They're over yonder in the wilderness. They're about to actually come in here and take part of the promised land that God wanted to give them. And so, um, remember, what was the word that Jacob said to Levi and Simeon? They were going to be what? Scattered. That they were going to be scattered. That was the word from Jacob, kind of a curse word to some degree. But then you also have this word of blessing because they responded, the Levites responded in faith to what God had commanded them. So what happens is that they're going to be uh, scattered throughout, but Moses blessed them and said that, um, you know, you're actually a set-apart people for, to do my work. The Levites eventually become what of Israel? What do they become? The priests of Israel. They become the priests of Israel. And the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi, this is from the text, to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to carry the presence of the Lord with them, to stand before the Lord and minister and to pronounce blessings in his name. So to the tribe of Levi, Moses doesn't give an inheritance like he gave to the other ones. Because, right, there's this kind of um, thing in the past that Jacob kind of said that you will be scattered throughout the land. That you're not going to get an inheritance like your other brothers and sisters got. And so there's this idea that Moses is giving them this inheritance as they're ready to go into the land, but it's not land. It is land, but it's not the land like everybody else. And he says to them, Moses says to the tribe of Levi, because of your faith, you are not going to get land like you did, like like your brothers and sisters did, but the Lord himself will be your inheritance. The Lord himself will be your inheritance. And so how did this work out tangibly? What ended up happening is that everybody went in, little side note, down here, this uh, area, this was Simeon's land. Eventually, Simeon's land actually got absorbed by Judah, and they just disappear off the map. So it wasn't even that they were scattered so much as that they were maybe scattered a little bit here, and then they were absorbed from the other culture. But all of these cities that you see here, these are cities of the Levites. These are called Levitical cities. These are cities that instead of there being this, you know, uh, place right here where all the Levites left, they were actually scattered throughout the land. They were scattered throughout the land. Also, there was 48 of the cities. Six of those cities were called cities of refuge. Now get this. There's anger. There's vengeance in the storyline. But in the city of refuge, what happens is that say I accidentally killed Jake. Say we're working, we're working on something. The rope slips from my hand and Jake gets crushed under a ton of bricks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not, I didn't mean to do that. It was, it was accidental, but I did it right? I'm guilty of that. Well, the Levitical cities were a place where I, the, 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 I don't want to say murder, the one that killed Jake could flee to, to find refuge. Because what was happening is that Steph was going to be PO'd at me. And Steph was going to seek vengeance because of the fact that I killed her husband. And Steph's whole family was going to seek vengeance because I killed, even though it was an accident. And so they were going to chase after me and try to get some kind of inheritance from me in order to um, compensate for what had happened and in order to enact vengeance upon me because of their anger that burned against, because they lost somebody. 
Well, these Levitical cities ended up being a place of refuge for those people where unjust acts of of, of revenge and vengeance wouldn't be allowed, that they could flee to these cities. I didn't purposefully murder Jake. And yet when that happened, there was this idea of vengeance that stirred up within Steph that she wanted to take it out on me. And yeah, I'm going to be, you know, Jake was one of my best friends. I'm going to be stricken with guilt and everything else the rest of my life. It's not like I get off scot-free by any means, knowing of the responsibility. But I flee to a city of refuge, and those cities of refuge are Levitical cities. And do you get the idea of the idea of anger and a vengeance that played into the first part with Simeon Levi? And then that bloodline, that heritage, that inheritance then, was actually redeemed to produce cities and to produce places that people could flee where they were um, unjustly being persecuted where they were going to be um, killed because of an accident that happened. Do you, do you see how the beginning and the end kind of have the same ideas in them, but it's for completely different reasons? That that storyline was kind of redeemed. And so this reworking of inheritance, how what started in sin and vengeance and curse with Simeon and Levi was re-narrated so that the Levites would then be a people to provide refuge to unjust acts of vengeance that the scattering was redeemed to be a blessing to others. So a lot of times we can feel scattered and we can feel be in places that we don't want, and yet is God working something through faith in those places? Where the, the, the Levites were scattered everywhere and they were to carry the presence of the Lord, they were to be the ones that instructed. We didn't need all the Levites to be down here in Jerusalem in the temple in one place. The presence of the Lord and his words and his counsel and instruction needed to be throughout the whole land. And so today, as we think about um, how uh, the Christians are scattered throughout the places, the great thing about that is that they're also bringing the gospel message into those places. The same thing for you and I today. As we leave here and we are scattered, maybe we don't like the situations that we're in, whether it's situations with family, in our community, at work, or whatever else. And yet God is working behind the scenes and with us, giving us his presence that even though if we're scattered in places we don't necessarily want to be, that we can still bring this level of redemption to those places. That we don't have to play a victim in those places. Some of those places you might have chosen. Simeon and Levi, their curse was brought upon themselves. Other places you might be in might be places of circumstance. But even in the midst of those circumstances, God and the scriptures and Peter is going to say, you're still a gospel person. You are still somebody that is treasured and loved by God no matter what your circumstances are. So be careful that your circumstances don't dictate how you live your life. Your identity in Christ as his child is what dictates how you live your life no matter where you are scattered to. On the back of your bulletin, there's a quote. So as we think about this, we don't want to lose sight of our inheritance that God is giving us through new birth, right? Peter is about to talk about the new birth, and through that new birth, we have a better inheritance than we could ever have here on earth. And um, that inheritance is available through faith and the redemption that God brings. The radical disjunction between our experienced reality and the cosmic truth about our identity only makes sense when we theologically reconceive of time itself. Meaning like, we're here now, but what's coming in the future? We're here now, what came in the past? Human identity is composed out of narrative, out of story. Peter's narrative explains who we really are, 
why we are not experiencing what we expect. I'm chosen. I'm treasured. I feel like junk because everybody hates me and my family because I'm following Jesus. And how these experiences relate to our ultimate end. The otherwise maddening ethical commands make sense because they are aimed at forming us into a certain kind of people headed for a certain kind of end. Peter is going to be telling uh, Christian husbands how they should be treating their wives that is against the grain of pagan society. He's going to be saying the same uh, conversely to the wives. He's going to be saying, hey, these rulers that you're under suck. And guess what? You need to honor them. And these commands would be maddening if it wasn't for the fact that God is forming his people because of their new identity in him and because of the inheritance that is waiting for them into uh, something different that they always, than what they always knew. So as it happens, this end is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. So let's turn to First Peter. I'm going to pray as we look at the text. God, thanks for this morning. Um, thanks for your story and uh, the story of uh, Simeon and Levi and the complex nature of it. God, help us as we see other people's stories. Help us to hear how you are narrating and re-narrating our lives as individuals and how you are uh, bringing about uh, a different kind of story for us corporately also for Cornerstone. Like, what are you speaking? What are the things in the past that were curses that you want to go ahead and redeem and make into blessings for others? Help us to be able to hear um, those places that can be really hurtful and help us to hear those places that can be really sensitive and yet you want to come to bring healing and to bring something better than we could expect ultimately. Uh, speak to us about your inheritance um, that you have for us that is secure in you, Jesus. Thank you for your love towards us and for the scriptures that you have given us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I am going to save my voice a little bit. Uh, Jacob Reinfeld, would you mind doing a reading? It's going to be on the screen, so you just have to read what's on the screen. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is from 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 12. There's three, there's three slides, just so you're aware. Praise be to Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The word of the Lord. So I'm not going to really hit this last section. I just wanted to mention what Peter is doing in this last section. So again, the people are under persecution for their faith. Uh, Peter is trying to re-narrate and tell them kind of a bitter, or not, not a bitter, a better story that is going on. And in this, par- in this paragraph, what he's saying here is like, do you realize what you're experiencing right now? The fact of this salvation that has come to you, there have been thousands of years of prophets waiting for Christ to be revealed. And you're, you know, 50, 50, you were in basically in the same generation as the Messiah. Do you realize what you're experiencing that so many people, the hope didn't get to see? And yet you are experiencing this almost firsthand. And he also goes on to say down here, even angels long to look into these things. That this salvation of God becoming man and of him dying for our sins and being resurrected again in the power of God and ascending back into heaven in order to then bring a new heaven and a new earth. Like the angels, the cosmic beings are like, what is this? And again, as 21st century American Christians, we can kind of be like, oh yeah, it's pretty cool. Because we're kind of used to the story, right? And yet what he's saying to First Peter and what we need to kind of also kind of reclaim is the fact that this story, if this story is true, it's amazing. And it's crazy. And not even angels kind of know, why did God do that? Why would he love these people, his creation, so much that he would suffer and die for them? And so there's this thing that Peter is doing where he's being like, do you realize what you're experiencing? Even though your life right now sucks, you're experiencing something that thousands of years of prophets and of people of faith longed to see. And even the angels, the unseen cosmic beings that are around, they're like, what is going on? I want to know more about this redemption that was offered to human beings. So don't miss out on the place that you are in life just because there are circumstances around you. Don't uh, idealize into how you th- thought things were going to be. So Peter's really trying to encourage them um, in that aspect. So let's go over a couple words that Peter uses. First, new birth. Peter uses this word of new birth, being born again, being born anew, to have one's mind changed so that you live a new life. One conformed to the will of God. Now there's multiple metaphors and language that are used in the scriptures to kind of talk about what's going on and what happened on the cross. Like we know what happened on the cross. Jesus died, he quote unquote died for our sins. But what, what does that mean? What else, what was going on behind the scenes that we didn't necessarily see? The disciples, when they were looking at it, didn't know what was going on. And so the past 2,000 years of Christian history, there have been different points in time that different kinds of atonement theology have um, uh, uh, rose to the surface in the scriptures about trying to figure out the um, inexpressibleness of what happened on the cross. Um, and there's different words and different metaphors that are used for this. I'm just going to quickly, in, a, in a, a theology nerd way, just quick hit four of them. There's seven of them, but some of them are connected to the other ones. So the first one is the Christus Victor way of theology. So this uh, was linked to the early church fathers and to Origen. And what happened is that it tried to um, pinpoint uh, the idea that what happened on the cross and the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus, and this is in Colossians, was that Christ took away our debt and our sins, disarming the spiritual rulers and authorities 
triumphing over them by the cross. So actually the death of Jesus was this miraculous victory in the resurrection where he disarmed the the spiritual rulers uh, and the spiritual beings that would influence human creation. They would be the ones, whatever you want to say, angels, demons, mindsets, uh, heart strongholds, whatever that was. And what happened on the cross and death and resurrection is that Christ was victorious and he disarmed them. And so there was this, this focus on that. So again, that was early church, uh, 200 AD. There's also the restitution theology. Restitution theology um, took place uh, around 1100 AD, uh, Catholic theology, primarily Anselm of Canterbury that was then kind of changed in the Reformation. And the driving thought was that the justice of God, um, in the justice of God, sin needed to be dealt with. So there, there was sin that happened. God is just. God is not just going to overlook it. It needs to be dealt with. And so it was dealt with by Christ, who was crucified as our substitute, and that mended what had been broken. So uh, Romans God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this kind of um, highlighted kind of the substitution thing that because of the sin, we should be the ones that die. And yet the love of God and the love of uh, Jesus Christ came and he died so that we didn't have to. We get his life, um, his eternal life, and he is also vindicated as the Messiah being uh, risen from the dead. Then there was the moral influence one. This has been throughout all early church. It came back to being during the Enlightenment. Um, And this was the idea that, uh, yeah, there was the cross, but there was also a lot of years before the cross. And Jesus came not only to die and to be resurrected, but he came to teach us a better way to live. He came to uh, affect our morality, to show us a better way, God's way of how we were supposed to love God and to love one another, which ultimately then ended up at the cross. And like, you know, no greater love is this than somebody that would uh, lay down their life for their brother or for their sister. And so uh, this was pinpointing the idea of not only do we want to receive what God has done for us, we, he is our rabbi and he is our teacher. And so we want to walk in his ways. So uh, we should live like he lived. If anyone would come after me, let her deny herself and take up her cross and follow Jesus. So this idea of a moral influence. And then we have this idea of new creation. Uh, New creation has been littered throughout Christian theology. I would say we're probably in the past 20 years and probably the next 20 years, I can't predict the future, at a place where this is actually coming to the surface a lot more. This idea of new creation is what actually happened on the cross. And this is by the death and resurrection of Jesus. As Peter says, we are born again that when we believe the cross was the place and the medium by which we are able to experience new birth. And not only us as individuals, but ultimately all of creation, new heaven and new earth will be made anew and birthed into uh, this glorious light. The new creation metaphor, the new creation thinking is what Peter uses in his letter when he says new birth. What's the famous passage in scripture that also uses this? What'd you say? Yeah, John 3, you know, unless you were born again, unless you were born from above, you can have no part in the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. And so this is another thing that's um, awesome to explore. We're going to explore this a lot more, and especially the idea of birth and agony and labor and pain during state of the family coming up in multiple months.
So I'm looking forward to that. But new creation, the idea of we are born again through Jesus Christ. You are born again. Now, as Peter is saying this to the people that are experiencing suffering, this is great news. Because your inheritance and your birthright was just basically taken away from you. Everything that you knew was turned upside down because you were just born again. And now your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your friends don't even really know you anymore because you're not participating in the social aspects that you were participating in before. You're not talking the same way as you were talking. You're not thinking the same way about your enemies that they were thinking about. You're not worshiping the same God that we've been worshiping for 30 years. And so very distinctly, a lot of these people would have had their inheritance taken away from them. And Peter's saying, guess what though? You have this new birth. You have been born again. You have been born anew. The God is your father and your mother and this birth has happened and he has a better inheritance for you than the inheritance that your family had on earth. You were born into this living hope. Real simple question, why is our hope living? Louder, proclaim it. Because Christ is alive. It's not a dead hope, which is a hope that is just kind of stagnant and man, I hope. But in our faith, if we actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he's going to return again, we believe that he's alive. It's not just this uh, humanistic mental goodness, uh, spiritual whatever, in order to get along. Like if we really believe this, he is alive and hence our hope is alive because our ultimate hope is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And so our hope through this new birth uh, is a living hope. This new birth also brings us into an inheritance, an inheritance. Again, the people of First Peter would have been losing their inheritance. And this inheritance is so much different than the inheritance of, um, uh, uh, of their earthly inheritance. It is imperishable, meaning that it can't be corrupted. It is undefiled, meaning with force and vigor, it is unimpaired. It's not going to lose force and vigor. It won't be deformed into something less. It is unfading, meaning that it won't waste away and just go away and become extinguished. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Compare this to what earthly inheritances can often bring, right? So this inheritance is secured according to the text where? Where is this inheritance? In heaven. We're neither moth or, what's the other word? Rust? Yeah, take hold of it. So it's set apart. Now, again, this inheritance, don't get too heavenly-minded that you don't think about the good. Uh, Like, this inheritance is in heaven for us, but that inheritance is ultimately going to what? Come to us. (laughs) Come to earth. That it's not just we're escaping to heaven to experience this, this inheritance. But in our death, yes, there will be a time of afterlife, but then there's also the resurrection and the renewal of all things where that inheritance and uh, God with man completely and fully happens in the new creation. So yes, that inheritance is in heaven, but ultimately heaven and earth are going to be renewed together. Don't lose sight of that because we're not just trying to get out of here. Whatever happens here on earth happens. Our inheritance is there and it's gonna be coming to us. Um, So compare this inheritance, which is secure in heaven, with the fickleness of our earthly inheritance. Earthly inheritance, just like that, can simply go away. As the readers were experiencing being, being written out of their will because they changed family allegiance. Earthly inheritance can dwindle just by the nature of use. 
whereas our inheritance in God is fully full both now and forevermore. It's not going to uh, depreciate in value. It is going to be full and it's always going to stay full and complete. Earthly inheritance in the hands of broken people can easily be corrupted or used to manipulate, right? You know, where an inheritance that maybe somebody wants to give you, well, there's some hoops you need to jump through here that are actually used in manipulation and not out of love, that are not stipulations of a relationship, but are stipulations of control. But that's not the kind of inheritance that God has for us. God has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, both for those people in First Peter and for us here today. A little bit later in the text, it talks about how there's this inexpressible joy that if you think about this, you can have, even though for now, for a little while, you're suffering grief. A little while can be a long time, right? <laughs> I mean, even like, just think of it right now, like it's been 2,000 years. Now again, our lives, 70, 80 years, 90 years. But when you're in the middle of chaos and when you're in the middle of being scatterbrained, your life isn't going as it is, it feels like that moment is forever, right? Peter is not um, trying to say that what you're feeling now and the grief that you're feeling now isn't legit because it is, but he's also trying to give a different perspective on it. That yeah, when we're feeling uh, scattered and when we're feeling exiled, when we're feeling alone, when we don't know if we actually want to hold on to our faith, when we're in those places, when we cry out to God, God, how long will this go on? How long will I experience this heartache? What, what Peter is doing here is trying to give us a, a time perspective, right? Comparatively, again, it can feel like forever. 80 years compared to eternity is a drop in the bucket, right? There's not really even any comparison. If our faith is in that, that we will be uh, in the presence of God where every tear will be wiped away, where the presence of the new creation and him in the new creation will be something that we can't even fathom right now. Yeah, the suffering that we're going through now sucks. But Peter is trying to encourage the people like there's something better coming and it's going to be long lasting and it's going to be forever. So a little while can feel like forever, but it's not forever. It's a little while. And then finally, this new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that as we hold on to our faith, even though we suffer for a little while, is ultimately for the salvation of our souls. Again, souls sometimes, not often, when paired with something else, can mean the um, part of you that is not seen. So in like Matthew, let's say 10, where God says, don't fear man who can only destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul. There it means the physical and the immaterial. The majority of the time, Salvation of souls means your whole being, right? Because Jesus Christ, again, was what? Resurrected, risen from the grave. Was it a physical resurrection? Was the tomb empty? And so the salvation that we're looking for is, again, a salvation of everything. Not just our souls or our spirit floating into heaven, but the resurrection of a new body. And again, us that experience uh, certain kinds of physical ailments throughout our whole body, like, I just want to get rid of this body. Again, what I think we're ultimately longing for is the redemption of our body to work the way it's meant to work, to be in its glorious state um, as a new creation in Christ, where sin and the toil of sin and the effect of sin all the way down to our DNA and to our uh, 
cells and everything doesn't have any place because our inheritance is imperishable and our inheritance is undefiled and our inheritance is uh, unfading. And so it's salvation, not of this immaterial thing, but of our whole being into the whole being of the new creation of heaven and earth. So that's inheritance. I should have warned everybody ahead of time. We're going to enter into a time of prayer. I usually like to tell people that ahead of time in case there's weird dynamics of I'm scared to pray with people. Hey, everybody, we're going to enter into a time of prayer in small groups. Um, what I would like us to do, so, so what is the first word in your text that this, starts, this passage starts out on? Don't look at that. What's the first word in your text? Say it. Praise. So first Peter is saying this, that this is kind of like a praise to God the Father who has given us this new birth through Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to do, I would like us to break up into groups of two or three. Worship team, you can come up here when I dismiss. And I just want you to pray, uh, praise to God for two things. One, for the fact of he alone can bring upon this new birth, this new creation, Right? Oftentimes, we can work our butts off to try to create something that only God can create. And there is a glorious rest that is found in realizing that only God is going to be able to do that. He might invite us into that as his priests, as his representatives, but it's going to be, if we do it on our own, without the Holy Spirit, without the blood of Christ, without the love of the Father, it's going to be nothing. So let's take a couple minutes, just one, to praise God for who he is in that, and that he's the one that brings upon this new birth. But then two, if there's anybody that comes to mind right now that you feel, and uh, uh, be, be discreet about it, um, but that you feel in your place of business, ministry, work, family, in your household, that you feel needs to experience this new birth or this resurrected life, let's spend a minute or two praying for them, okay? And let's, um, to kind of set this up, I want to read a portion of Isaiah. Um, that, that talks about two of these things. So Isaiah 26, Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth and the people of the world have not come to life. Because one of the ultimate things that God has called us into with Abraham is that Israel is supposed to be uh, a blessing in order to be a blessing to other nations, to everybody else. And so you can even have that good intention mindset. I want to be a blessing to somebody else, but you can do it without God. And the result is fruitless. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will give birth to her dead.